Okay, morning. So, uh, counterculture, second part this week of our series in counterculture. So, uh, we've been looking, or we started to look last week at uh, cultural challenges, issues that affect our faith and our identity. And it's going to be a series that Steve introduced last week that's going to run through to the beginning of the summer. Um, we're going to look really, when we look at faith and identity, particularly in this context, about things that shape our opinions. Subconsciously, culture says so many things to us, uh, and, and uh, what are we listening to? Our culture is becoming increasingly secular. Uh, that means it takes us away from our roots, our Christian roots, particularly in the UK. And Steve really challenged us to not disengage with our culture, but to listen, but to be a positive influence. John 17, he quoted, and Claire then looked specifically at this issue of identity. She shared some personal experiences and challenges and showed how much we need to root ourselves in God's word and what that means for us. Truth that comes from the word is corporate to the church, but it's also very personal to us as individuals. And we need the word to shape our view of ourselves and how we interact with the world around us to renew this sense of renewal. So Steve gave me this really big topic, science and God. Um, uh, just to give you an idea where I'm going, I've got a start slide. Um, I'm going to look at the cultural dialogue versus a more positive dialogue. We're going to look at how science really inspires us to awe. And it informs theology. Michaela did a fantastic job of doing that already. And uh, we're going to then look at what science can't say about us, about being human, the identity issue. God is relational. Then we're going to finish with a story, a personal story, about an, a, someone I met. And just talk a bit of background about me. Why, why am I doing this one particularly? I'm, uh, so I do science all week. Uh, I work in science, so I have a degree in chemistry. I was offered a European postgraduate position to study uh, a postgraduate level in theoretical chemistry. Um, I did that. Then I decided academia wasn't for me. I wanted to do industry. I did over 18 years in industrial scientific research. I do it now as my job. Um, so if I do church on Sunday, that's four pages to six pages on my sermon. Then there's five days for the weekday. So my sermon's pretty big. Um, but then, then my wife's pretty good because she's not a scientist. So she took the axe to it yesterday. <laughs> she said she's not here because she had to pick my daughter up from camp. So you're lucky that my wife brought some sanity. Um, so... I, uh, yeah, I've worked for UK companies, really small startups, uh, three, four. Um, then I've worked for some really large multinationals I work at the moment. Um, yeah, nothing I say is any opinion apart from my own, by the way. Um, but I've worked on projects, teams, departments, companies that work on things like cancer, viral infection, neurodegenerative, things like Alzheimer's at the moment. Really big issues of human health. And my lab's a computer. I do... Oh, I have done everything from simulation, predictive modeling. Uh, more recently, I, I developed data and algorithms and systems to automate a lot of the science. So has anyone got a science background, just so I know who I'm talking to? Hey, it's got a few science engineers. It's good. Sociology, yeah, apparently, if, like psychology, it's always a debate whether psychology is a, PA, a, a BSc or a mask, like a, a Bachelor's of Arts, BA, thank you. So, yeah, a bit of a debate. I'm not going to wade into that one. Um, <laughs> Yeah, 
So what about, um, hopefully you loved doing it at college, I don't know. I mean, what does it mean to you? What are, what's people's opinion of science? What about benefits of science that you, you've benefited from? Anything that we can think of? Michaela said medicine. That's what I work in. Um, what about the downsides? The controversial sides in the news, anything? Pollution, Pollution yeah. I mean, Exxon Valdez, you could think of oil spills. What's that? Weapons, yeah. I mean, Hiroshima. Um, massive uh, searching of the heart from the scientists that produced the physics behind the nuclear bomb and, and what the outcome was of that. So, what is science? The study of nature and the behavior of the natural things, the knowledge we obtain about them. Positive stuff, negative stuff. But it's just collecting and studying that knowledge and turning it into uh, the practical use as well, particularly in industry and everywhere else. But in the media, I think there's a real um, two-sided debate. It can be very hostile, very anti-faith. Uh, in a world of facts, opinions that are rational, very rational, it's really hard to believe sometime in a God, a creator God, let alone a personal one. Uh, it's sort of sometimes thought to be irrational. Don't use, you know, if you use your intellect, then you wouldn't believe in God. Don't use your brain. And scientific findings are often triumphed as really grand, that they, you know, this is the answer to everything. Um, these are things like Richard Dawkins' work. Um, recently, Stephen Hawkins passed away. I don't know if you knew him. He had a lifetime battle with motor neuron disease, very popular in culture, wrote some best-selling books, a film in 2014 about him. And uh, he really came to this grand conclusion of his life's work, brilliant work, studying the origins of the universe. He came up with this conclusion that there was no room for God. Science made the universe happen. And uh, Peter Atkins, who wrote my chemistry textbook, helped me pass all my exams. He said, humanity should accept the science has eliminated the justification for believing in cosmic purpose. Science can illuminate moral and spiritual questions. That's it. Science is, is everything. And history doesn't help. You can go look through the history of the church battling the, the, some of the scientific things that have happened. It's not all negative at all. We'll come to that. It's very highly politicized and often toxic debate. Um, and I'm well aware, creation was six days. Traditionally, science, tens of billions of years. God made man unique. Man is kind of no different to anything else. The universe is huge and inconsequential. Man is created for purpose. Big, big issues that we come to. Bible and miracles. Should we pray when the world is just like a clock that's wound up according to physical laws? What's the point? Science seems so rational. It just removes the need for the divine and the spiritual. So that can leave you bewildered, confused. Maybe you ignore it because it's just you don't want to think about these stuff. It's just complicated. It is very complicated now, science. Um, maybe we ignore and dismiss it. Has science disproved God? Has science disproved God? Uh, occasionally, the science geek comes out in my youngest daughter. And uh, last, last month, we did cress growing. Um, and uh, she's trying out these different conditions. The bathroom stank of vinegar because that was one of the things. And then, uh, then, then it spilt and it ruined the paint. I've got to have to repaint the bathroom. So it's like, it ran down the windowsill. Um, and then a week after, it's, it was slime making. You've seen this like, slime, you know, they make this stuff. I don't know what they do with it. Stretchy and things. And uh, the first attempt was so bad that she, well, she couldn't eat her dinner and she went to 
sort of bed feeling pretty sick because of all the fumes, I think, that she'd inhaled all afternoon. She was so persistent. But the week after was really groundbreaking, uh, thanks to YouTube. Um, we're not using borax, if you're a scientist. Um, they, they, the two of them in the kitchen found this recipe with corn flour and marshmallows. This is amazing because it tastes really good and it's stretchy. And uh, if, if you know this stuff, once you've made it, you can kind of just open it up and you can just stretch it out. And it's this massive thing, and then you just crunch it back up again. Uh, sort of slimy, stretchy thing. And so great was this explosive event in our kitchen that I got kicked out. And I'm like, Dad, don't come back in. Don't come back in. We're going to tidy up. I was like, oh, man, this is really bad. Sarah's out. Like, she's like, what, what has he done? What's he let them do? Uh, so I left, and they cleared up the mess. Now, Stephen Hawkins is not going to be proud of my explanation of the Big Bang. But this idea of the universe starting from a tiny point and expanding and exploding out from something called a singularity, like that putty, like the slime that my kids made, is a little bit like the Big Bang Theory that he popularized and actually brought together different physics fields and maths to really give an explanation of how the universe began. It's contentious in some Christian circles. The long timelines give us room for evolutionary processes. This conflicts really with a lot of the uh, sort of traditional seven-day view that the church held thousands of years back that started as the, the founding parts or, or views of, in science. And this is the conflict model. Science conflicts with faith. There's no room. They are in loggerhead arguments, okay? That's the first model of science and faith, conflict. Some people subscribe to that. Uh, I'm not going to spend time on it. The second model... Again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Stephen Jay Gould is a really good writer, popular science writer. Really enjoyed his, his biology writing, an evolutionary biologist. Uh, very influential in putting a view in the media that really these are something called um, sep- sort of separate magisteria. Um, in, you, you, one thing cannot inform the other. Science can't say anything about God. Just go and do your private, personal faith. Nothing to do with science. Stay away. And, and science won't touch faith. We'll keep it really boxed in and separate because they can't inform each other. Faith is private and subjective. It's not in the empirical realm. But it's not a model I'm going to go into this morning because I want to go to a model that Tim Keller writes really well about in his book, The Reason for God. And contrary to the polar debate that the media puts out there, that these are really one extreme or the other, there's actually a massive amount of middle ground. And contrary to these this sort of two ends, Keller puts it like this. Here, science and faith can be partners in a conversation, each contributing a unique perspective to each other. I don't have time to dissect all of this, like how we reconcile it in Genesis 1. We can talk about it afterwards. There's gap theory, day-age theory, uh, framework hypothesis, which I really like. Um, We can talk about it another time. Um, But And read Keller's book as well. It's a really light introduction. But the next morning, after my kids did this massive experiment, okay, they tidied up, and we went to bed. Sarah got back. It was all good. And I came down and put my toast on and make my coffee. And um, So I opened the drawer to get a knife out to spread my butter and that. And it's like, look, it's like, the drawer's all sticky. The handle's covered in, like, marshmallow. 
And then I go to put the toast in the toaster, and there's like this fine white dusting all over the top of the toaster from the corn flour. And yeah, okay, my kids have tidied up. This is okay. But if you look carefully around my kitchen, you see their fingerprints everywhere. You might not know what they did, but they left their fingerprints everywhere. And personally, as a scientist, when I look around at the creation, I am really breathtaking and inspired by its beauty, the diversity, the microscopic detail, the complexity. I see God's fingerprints all over the creation. Science has never reduced my capacity for awe and wonder. Awe at God's creation. God made it. He exists outside of it. Science will continue to tell us more about it. And that only feeds my awe and inspiration. Science inspires awe. So I'm not a fan of taking specific Christian references for, from, from the Bible and linking them to scientific facts. I'm just going to do one, though, because it really inspired me. This is an astrophysicist, a Christian, founder of Reasons to Believe, Dr. Hugh Ross. And uh, he says that in 11 places in Scripture, the Bible speaks of God stretching out the heavens. Like my kids with this putty, like this theory we have of how the universe began stretching out. Job 9, he alone stretched out the heavens. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, and the constellations of the south. Isaiah 40, 22 says, he stretched out the heavens like a canopy. It's no wonder that the songwriter Matt Redman, whose songs we sing so frequently, has a book on his desk of photographs of the universe, things like the Hubble spaceship that scientists have built and sent into space. He opens it and reads it for inspiration and worship. The dialogue between science and faith is so strong when science feeds our capacity to wonder. And science promotes chiefs, man's chief aim, which is worship, the Westminster Catechism. Psalm 33, 6 By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. And Isaiah 40, 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. And go read Job 38 as well. I really highly recommend a book. I've just finished reading it. The Book That Made Your World. The Book That Made Your World. It's by an apologetics, uh, an Indian author, Vishnu Mangalvadi. A brilliant book. He comes from an Eastern background and has a unique insight into Western civilization. And uh, he really goes deep into how the Bible underpins the success and explosion of, of everything we've benefited from in the West and how it philosophically underpins so much of science. Quote, the scientific method of studying nature grew out of theology. And it's that view we have in Genesis 1 of 
our biblical mandate to subdue and rule the earth that inspired generations of scientists to go out and quantify and measure and understand the world we have around us. The fruits of which we enjoy now when we switch on the microwave and uh, warm our coffee or whatever else. So the scientific revolution really was launched by Bible-believing scientists. Not all of them, but you can go and read about so many of them. And he shows how Chinese monks and Hindu sages, though they didn't lack the intellectual capacity to do this, they just did not have the philosophical motivation. But we have that mandate from Genesis to subdue and rule and that sense of worship that leads us into wonder and inquiry about the world we live in. And Francis Bacon, who's considered one of the founders of the scientific method, he believed that in order to understand God, you had to look at two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture, because they would inform each other. The one would inform the other. It was a conversation, a dialogue between the two. And Tom McLeish, in his book, Faith and Science, Faith and Wisdom in Science, a really interesting book. I haven't finished reading it. Um, but he writes that theology must speak about science. Theology must speak about science. And it does so by recognizing that the universe contains people, communities, relationships, living experience stories. It works within a radical but not ridiculous idea that personhood might extend beyond the confines of physical nature. There's more to you than just the matter that you're made from. You are stardust, but you're more than that. Much more. Genesis 1:26 and 2:7 said, And God made man. He said, let, man, let us make man in our image, our likeness. Let them rule. The Lord breathed into him, into his nostrils, the breath of life. Man was made in God's image. He's the image bearer of God, such that he would relate to him, ultimately in worship. Of course, there's a swirling debate about exactly how God made man. No time to go into it. Um, Tom, uh, Daryl Falk, interesting book, Coming to Peace with Science, he says this, Let us not let a particular interpretation of a tiny section of God's precious word become so central that it creates a gulf blocking the access of any individuals to the experience of God's love for his church. I almost missed out. So why did the distance seem to be to me? He'd been fed the conflict view. But if the scientific community often seems to diminish what man is in this massive universe, just gets bigger, more complicated. We dig into the depths of space, and then we dig into the depths of who we are, genomics, archaeology, paleontobiology, which is a really cool way of saying Jurassic Park. <laughs> Perhaps it leads to somehow suggesting that there's meaningless in this, The universe is so big that man is just this tiny, insignificant thing. And it's true, because Psalm 8 said it first. The psalmist wrote, What is man that you are mindful of him? 
human beings, that you care for them. You made them a little lower than the angels, but you crowned them with glory and honor. Again and again, there's this great capacity of man to find awe and majesty that leads to worship, the Psalms are full. But there's a second recognition here that the psalmist recognizes that man has a special place in creation, a very special place. What is man that you are mindful of him? It's something that goes beyond intelligence and it's hard for science to define. The physician and geneticist Francis Collins, he's the director of the USNIH, National Institute for Health, and he led the project, The Sequence of Human Genome. Brilliant book that he wrote, The Language of God. He's a Bible-believing, a God-fearing man in American language. Um, the Language of God's a brilliant book. Do have a look. He discusses how evolutionary biology, genomic sequences, and broader fields of science that he all believes in and operates within merely show us how God operates. They just show us how he operates. Quote, But DNA sequencing accompanied by vast troves of data on biological function, will never explain special human attributes, such as the knowledge of the moral law and the universal search for God. Certainly a man who understands the complexities of science and faith and the debate. See, modern medicine peers into secret places like the womb and shows us some of the beautiful details about life and the mysteries of life's formation. Psalm 139 speaks of God's intimate knowledge of you. He knows you personally, even before you entered this world. Every aspect of your person and character with all your faults was ordained by God. He made you. Jeremiah, he says, who are you to argue with the potter who makes the clay into a vessel? Psalm 139, for you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because you are fearfully, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Is it not astonishing that God made man so unique, different, from everyone else. Hard to define why. And it's really astonishing that given everything we know about this world, massive and intricate detail, all of these things, that we read this account, Mark 4, Matthew 8. These burly fishermen are, after a lifetime of experience fishing on the Lake of Galilee, they just, uh, they know the nature, the environment, and they're in this boat it's a massive storm, and they really fear for their lives. They're bailing the boat out just to stay alive. And they wake this man in the boat, Jesus, who's sleeping on a cushion. And they say, aren't you, aren't you worried that we're going to perish? We're going to die. 
And Jesus stands up and he stops the wind and he speaks to the waves and they instantly stop. And they look at him and they say, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. What does that tell you about the God you believe in? Why did God take such a personal interest in man that he would come down to earth and send his son to deal with the human problems of pain, suffering and brokenness that science can't necessarily speak into and understand fully? Aspects of the creation that only the Bible can put a good framework around for us to understand. You should read Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, about the evidence for Christ. Brilliant book. He set out to disprove that Christ was a historical figure. When he finished the book, he believed and it launched him to a lifetime of the ministry. Two-volume book on my bookshelf. Not a Christian, this author, but the writer and the neurologist Oliver Sacks, uh, one of my favorite books, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. So it's an absolutely brilliant book. It, it, it very compassionately and humanly talks about brain injuries and the regions of the brain, and he shows through accounts with his patients um, all of the different areas of the brain and how they contribute to who you are, your personality, your makeup. And uh, he really digs deep into issues of human identity um, on that level, a very physical level. And in that book, he wonders a bit, and he says this, empirical science, empiricism, takes no account of the soul. No account of what constitutes a human being. And he very movingly then goes on to describe this patient, Jimmy G. And Jimmy has had a a lifetime uh, um, working, uh, but later in life he has very severe and permanent amnesia. It's catastrophic. Um, Very severely affects him. It leaves him isolated, dislocated, confused, doesn't know who he is. He only knows half of his life up to a point and not the rest of it. He doesn't really understand who he is or where he is. And uh, he says to the nurse um, on the ward, do you think it's almost like uh, as if Jimmy's lost his soul? And the nurse looks at him and says, with an anger in her eyes, a spark in her eyes, she says, You've never seen Jimmy in the chapel. And Sachs goes and watches Jimmy in a chapel, usually agitated, distressed, around all the time. And he sits in this chapel, and at the back, Oliver Sachs is watching. And he writes this, Becoming absorbed in an act of his whole being, which carried feeling and meaning in an organic continuity and unity, a continuity and unity so seamless it could not permit any break. Clearly, Jimmy found himself, found continuity and reality in the absoluteness of spiritual attention and act. He did find his soul here. Did Jimmy sense and find something of his self-identity in relating something bigger than him to his Creator? Is it not the Bible that gives us a sense of dignity and humanity and love that helps us deal with illness? Though science is there as well, trying to treat as much as it can. 
does not our faith help deal with the problems of brokenness and pain and suffering? And what about prayer? An eminent scientist, Professor John Polkinghorne, really has gone into the depths of things like quantum mechanics. Uh, he left in the end to become uh, a bishop, I think, in the Church of England. But he talks about how God interacts, and this is a quite patiently and lovingly with the process of creation, to which the Creator has given its own due measure of independence. This intermingling of providential grace with the freedom of nature means that divine action will never be demonstrable by experiments, though it might be discernible by the intuition of faith. In other words, you won't prove whether God's at work or whether he exists, but you'll see it through the intuition of faith. About 10 years back, I was working for a company um, and I had to do a day trip with a colleague, a really brilliant colleague and uh, expert in her field. And we had to go to Paris for a day to meet this French academic. Um, okay, if you want to, yeah. And uh, it was a really good trip, fantastic lunch in Paris. I think I had culture shock when I get back because we did this really lovely lunch, like typically French, about two hours long. Uh, we did talk some work. Um, but on these journeys, you get to talk, don't you? You, know, you know, just chat about life and things and work and stuff. And, and my colleague was sitting opposite me at the window. I can see her, and she's, she's sitting here, and she, she looks out the window. And we're talking about our kids, and she says, the other day, I was putting my kids to bed, and my daughter turned to me, and she says, Mommy, what happens when you die? And my colleague's replying, she says, well, it's like you just close your eyes and you go to sleep. Ah, it's just nothing. It's such a shame, she said, such a shame. Didn't tell me a second to reply and say that I have a faith. And how different it is in my house that when my kids inevitably ask me that question, the answer is all about hope. All about hope. God created this world for his glory and worship, and science should inspire you to awe at his majesty and his grand creation. And despite, yes, your utter insignificance in that, utterly insignificant, God says that he made you individually, personally, that he knows you, Psalm 139, Isaiah 43, verse 1. He called you by name. He knew every aspect of you before you were born. And your chief aim is to relate to him in worship. He made creation as a temple for his worship. And he reached down and wants to interact with you through his only son. Science has a limited sense of hope. But our faith offers us so much more. Michaela.